Hear now the reading of God's holy word, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Let's pray. Our Father in, in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the truth concerning your son, Jesus Christ, that he came down and was humbled even unto the death of the cross, being obedient to God the Father. We thank you, O Lord, that you gave him a name above every name, that you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand, making all angels and powers, making all dominions and governments subject to him. So, O Lord, bless us as we consider these words of life, that we might grow in the knowledge of God and in obedience to your will and in our delight in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The title this evening of our sermon is Captivity Captive, our Lord Jesus Christ taking our captivity and putting it into captivity itself. We've already reviewed Ephesians, but just to reiterate, chapters 1 through 3, what man is to believe concerning God, chapters 4 through 6, what is the duty that God requires of man. Chapter 1 tells us of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ from the whole Trinity, from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Ghost. Paul prays for the spiritual enlightenment of the Ephesians and that they might enjoy the blessings of Christ in their personal Christian experience. Chapter 2, the Apostle deals with death in sin and that being the context for the blessings of the Gospel. The, The further down we see man plunged, the greater we see his redemption and exaltation in Christ. And so he starts us down there as a corpse dead in trespasses and sins raised together with Christ. He tells us that we are heirs of the testament of God, not just Jews inheriting the land of Palestine through their father Abraham, but rather all the Gentiles are heirs together. We are joined and united in this nation, this commonwealth of Israel. Whether Jew or Gentile, all who believe in Christ have the same Savior and the same covenants of promise. We see there also in chapter 2 that Christ is the chief cornerstone in this house of God, this building of faith that is edified as we see here in chapter 4. Christ, the cornerstone, and all the prophets and apostles through their writings provide the foundation for this holy house of God, the scriptures themselves. Chapter 3 tells us of the apostles' ministry to the Gentiles. He has another prayer. This time to the Father. He bows his knee to the Father, he says, and he prays for inward and spiritual strength to comprehend something that is beyond the reach of man's natural reason. The blessings that we have in Christ, these must be grasped, but we cannot do it in our own strength. And so he prays, God, You, Father, please enlighten the minds of these people. Give them spiritual strength to comprehend what is the length and breadth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes 
knowledge. This, of course, ends as many of the doctrinal portions of Paul's epistle with a word of praise. Doxology, we say. Doxa is glory. And logos is a word or a message from your thoughts. This is a word of praise. We have thought through the truth and now we give glory to God. This ends the doctrinal portion. So chapter 5 takes the doctrine and applies it. A doctrine has not been properly understood until it is applied. And an application is not properly made unless laid on the foundation of true doctrine. And so now the apostle, having laid the groundwork, the foundation for the truth of the gospel, now brings them to practice. How should the saints live? What is the duty that we owe to God? What is the duty that I owe to my neighbor? These are the questions asked and answered within these chapters. He'll deal with church officers. He'll deal with those who are equals in the church, brothers and sisters. He'll deal with those who are husbands, those who are wives, those who are slaves, those who are masters, those who are children, those who are parents. What are the duties that we owe to one another? And what is the duty that we owe to God? This is the application of the truth. This is the gospel where the rubber meets the road. Humility, as we saw, patience and love rooted in our common confession, our common sacraments, our common God and Father. This unity is the outworking of our doctrinal unity. The truth is the foundation for our love, the doctrines for our duties, the promises for our precepts, God lays these foundations for us and then he builds on that foundation the duty that we owe to him and one another. Yet this unity we have in Christ, this unity in doctrine, has a diversity in giftings and specific applications. And that brings us then to verses 8 and following. We'll look then this evening at verses 8 through 10, going verse by verse, phrase by phrase, briefly noting the leading doctrines and uses we can make of these doctrines. And then finally, we'll conclude with some final doctrines and uses to tie the, all these three verses together. First then, verse by verse, starting at verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Notice here we have the time of Christ's glory when he ascended up on high. We have the plunder of Christ's enemies when he led captivity captive. And finally, we have the spoils that he gives to his friends. First then, wherefore? This is the reason for which Christ divided his gifts according to his measure. Why did he do this? Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high. Please open to Psalm 68. We'll look at verses 17 through 19. The apostle is quoting from the Old Testament. So it would be helpful if we could look at that passage. Psalm 68, starting at verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits 
even the God of our salvation, Selah. Notice here the comparison. He draws us back to what? Mount Sinai. He tells us that just as God reigned there as a king supreme on Mount Sinai, issuing orders with angels subject to him, so also is Christ. Christ has ascended up on high, just as God ascended Mount Sinai. And from thence, what did he do? He rules and reigns over his people. So we have a Christ who died as king, but who rose again as king and ascended up to heaven and what? is seated at God's right hand. There he sits on his royal throne, ruling over his people as God did at Mount Sinai. Not only so, but he took the captivity of his people and he put it in prison. He took the slavery and enslaved it, you might say. That's the idea of captivity, bringing captives as prisoners, as slaves. Notice what else? As he ascended up into heaven... As he took away all the bondage of sin and death and hell in the grave, what else did he have? Gifts, it says. He received gifts for men. What sort of men? His friends, like Caesar did when he triumphed, where he gave out gifts to all the people who helped him to conquer these various nations? No. For the rebellious, our Lord Jesus Christ takes rebels and he gifts them by his grace. Why? That the Lord God might dwell among them. God cannot dwell with the stiff-necked and rebellious people. God will reject and judge and curse them. And so our Lord Jesus Christ in his ascension up into heaven has a mission of grace to us, a mission of salvation. And therefore, verse 19 breaks out in doxology. Blessed be the Lord. He daily loads us with benefits. He is the God of our salvation. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ secured by his kingly reign our salvation. He ascended up and got these gifts for us. Remember he said to his disciples, all authority is given unto me. When did he say that? Right before he did something, what did he do? Right after he told them he had all authority and therefore go make all the nations his disciples, he ascended up on high, didn't he? Our Lord Jesus Christ ascends not according to the Godhead in motion. God doesn't move. Did you know that? God is in one place at all times. In fact, he is everywhere at all times. God doesn't go up. God doesn't come down. But the person who came down, who was incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was and is the eternal God. And when our Lord Jesus Christ took upon flesh, that flesh was mortal. That flesh died. He was buried in the grave and he rose again. And then in his own natural body, he ascended up into heaven. This same God who came down incarnate ascended up into heaven. And when he did this, when he finished the work of our salvation, he took captivity into captivity. He led it captive. Those enemies that held us, what were they? What were the enemies that made us rebels against God, with whom God will now dwell? What about the world? What about the flesh? What about the devil? The enemies of our soul, our own sinful nature, our flesh. 
our enemy, the false accuser, the devil who comes along to destroy us with all of his temptations. The world with all of its allurements. Oh, look, you can be happy. You can have your best life now, can't you? This is a demonic ideology, by the way. If your best life is now, guess what happens when you die? Your life gets worse. No, a Christian has their worst life now because everything is better after we die. We get to be with Christ himself who died for us. We get to see our Father who adopted us. We get the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We put off the old sinful nature completely and once and for all. What could be better than that? The world says, your best life now. It's our enemy. It tries to hold us back from serving God. Christ led captivity captive. In fact, you can look this up. Matthew 12 Jesus says, when the strong man is going to have his goods spoiled, what has to happen? Somebody has to tie him up, doesn't he? He has to tie up the strong man and then he spoils his goods. Because if the strong man's on the loose, what happens? You're not getting anything. He's going to keep his goods. He's going to kill you for trying to take his things. And so Revelation 20, what happens to the devil? He gets bound with a great chain and thrown down so that he cannot do what? Deceive the nations any longer. Our Lord Jesus Christ took those that held us captive and he throws them in prison. He binds the strong man and says, Now my kingdom will come. Now my will will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This is what he teaches us to pray. This is what he says he's going to do in the Great Commission. I'm going to make all the nations my disciples. Well, wait. Aren't the nations under satanic deception? Yes, that's why the strong man has to be bound. That's why captivity must be led captive. Numbers 21, verse 1. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. That's our word in the Septuagint. Captivity. He took them as prisoners to his will. He spoiled them from among the Israelites and said, These are mine. Judges 5.12 Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song, arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. You, come, Barak, take all your captives, and lead them as prisoners in chains. That's what he's saying. Captivity was made captive by Barak. Now, 2 Chronicles 28.5, Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, and they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives. Same words. Captivity was put into captivity. This is the idea of bondage. But notice, when Christ comes, there are people in bondage and he releases them and takes those who held them captive and he makes them into the captives. The very same trick that they tried to play on the people of God, on the elect of God, he plays on them, he catches them in their craftiness. Edward Lee, in his annotation, says the following, By captivity is meant sin and Satan which did and do lead men captive into perdition. Death and the grave, which held him, that is Christ, captive, 
and in bondage for the space of three days, he leads them all captive, first in himself, triumphing over them, second in his members, subduing and weakening their power. So Christ our Lord leads captivity captive, and that's part of his kingly work when he ascended up into heaven. Now, for those of you who like history, there was a gentleman named Apian of Alexandria. And in book two of his histories of the civil war between Julius Caesar and the other members of the triumvirate, he describes a triumph. Caesar held a quadruple triumph, which means he had overcome four various kingdoms. And what he would do is he would parade around all the enemies he destroyed, his captives, in painting form. In fact, the Romans were disgusted by this because of them. Some of them were famous Romans that he had in this specific group of captivity that he was taking captive. And as he went forth, he had a crown put on his head. He had gifts that he would distribute to his people. And he describes these gifts. If you were a plebeian, you got 100 denarii. If you were a soldier, you got 5,000. If you were a centurion, you got 10,000. If you were a tribune, you got 20,000. Notice, according to the measure of Caesar, he gives good gifts to the Romans, not to the rebellious, but to those who helped him win his wars. What does Christ do? He gives gifts to men, yea, the rebellious, that God may dwell among them. It is all of his grace. These gifts that he distributes are the spoils of his war. He leads his captives. He shows these who once held you in bondage. I'm crushing and destroying the head of Satan. I'm overcoming the world. And by faith, you will overcome the world. And I am going to subdue your flesh so that you will be a holy people unto me. Christ gives gifts unto men. So then this doctrine, the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace is procured by Christ's humiliation and by Christ's exaltation. It is not by programs. It's not by a specific formula that we draw up and follow. Formulas can be good. Programs, fine, as long as they're according to Scripture. But those don't cause us to be unified. Pretending that we don't disagree won't cause us to be unified. What will cause us to be unified? Jesus Christ and Him ruling and reigning in our hearts. Jesus Christ come down and humiliated. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. This is what procures the unity of the Spirit. Let us then, in exhortation from this doctrine, not build on other foundations. Christ is King, not man. Have you ever seen Oliver Cromwell's headstone? Christ, not man, is King. That was his motto. Christ is king, not man. Therefore, let us not look to human wisdom, to human forms, to human feelings, to human programs in a search for unity, but rather to Christ alone. He is the king. He is the head of the church. He conquers all of his and our enemies. He rules and reigns as our sole lawgiver and judge. He's the only one who defends us and preserves us to eternal life. Why would we look to others? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Verse 9, Ephesians 4, 9. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? 
First, we have the things that preceded his ascension, and then we have the humiliation of Christ. Now that he ascended, he says, what is it but that he also descended first? This is a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer. He's provoking a thought in your head. Christ, as God, was exalted on high from all eternity. He descended. He came down. That is, he took upon him flesh. He came down among men. John 16, 28. Our Lord says, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. John 16, 28. Also in John 6, if you recall, there's a discussion about manna. And there's a discussion about the fathers in the wilderness and how they had bread that came down from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. I was first in heaven. And then what? I came down. I descended. And the same one, he says here in Ephesians 4, 9, the same one that descended also had to do that first before he could ascend. There had to be a descent before an ascension. And where did he descend to? He descended to the lower parts of the earth. Please open to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 15. What is it to go into the lower parts of the earth? Is it some limbo place where the fathers in the Old Testament, because they weren't really saved, they were kind of saved, Jesus had to finally go and save them? Is that what this is talking about? Psalm 139, verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. What's he talking about? Any of you kids know what he's talking about? What's he referring to? Where was David curiously wrought? It's like you're spinning together. You ever see a woman... Make it, what, what, in heaven? Guess again. That's not quite right. The lowest parts of the earth. Where was he? Where were you when you were knit together? You were in your mother's womb. I was in my mother's womb. David was in his mother's womb. And what does he refer to his mother's womb as? The lower parts of the earth. God fashioned his substance. God knit him together. God put all of his members in that secret place, not in the limbus patrum, in the limbo of the fathers. No, it was in his mother's womb. So when our Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself, where was he? Where did that start? In the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's the lower parts of the earth. The incarnation itself For God to take upon himself flesh is massive humiliation. For the eternal God to take upon flesh, but to be there in the womb of a virgin, a poor woman, that is beyond humiliation. All done for our sakes. He was incarnate in the virgin's womb. Please open to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. There's another part of Christ's humiliation. Not only his incarnation, 
but also his death and burial. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights, where? In the heart of the earth. Now he was actually buried in a tomb, kind of like the side of a wall where you could roll the stone away and put a person in. We bury people usually six feet down. He was buried in the side of a mountain, so much for immersion baptism. But be that as it may, notice here, the heart of the earth being buried in a tomb is the heart of the earth. Yes, it is the lower parts of the earth. He came down and humbled himself, not only in becoming incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but also in dying and in being buried for our sins. Christ was humiliated. And before he ascended up and was exalted on high, he had to be humbled first. Please turn back to Ephesians 4, verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Here notice the identity. In the Greek, it's ha-autos. Autos is the same Ha-autos is the same, the very same one. That's what he's saying. Christ is the same person who humbled himself when he was exalted. And this is very important. There are some who taught that when our Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the flesh of the Virgin Mary, that he became like a third thing. Neither God nor man but something else, kind of like when you mix your ingredients up for pancakes. It used to be that you had flour and milk and eggs and salt. Now you have this other thing. You've mixed it all up. And now it's a new substance, more or less, right? They think that Jesus is somehow a mixture substance of God and man. Ingredient one, Godhead. Ingredient two, manhood. Then you have this separate pancake substance. No. No, that's not actually true. God who came down to take upon himself flesh is the very same who ascended up. The descending one is the same person as the ascending one. There is a unity in the person of Christ. He is a divine person with a human nature. He's not a human person and a divine person mixed up with two persons or some third substance. No, he is one person, the very same fully God who took upon him flesh, also ascended up into heaven. And where exactly did he go? Where is the place where he ascended? Far above all heavens. Turn back a few chapters, chapter 1 of Ephesians. We'll look at verses 20 through 23 referring to the mighty power of God that works toward us who believe, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
Notice, what does the apostle not say? Gave him to be head over the church, and that's it. That's what some people believe, that the authority of Christ is exclusively over the church, but that's not what he says. He says that the authority of Christ is universal over all things for the sake of the church. Christ rules over all, what does he name? Principalities, powers, mights, dominion, every name that is named. In the Bible, the name is like the authority of someone. The name of great King Nebuchadnezzar. That's his authority, his rule as king of kings, so he called himself. What are the names that are named in the earth? Because he says, not only in this world. Are there names in this world? Oh, yes. King, prime minister, president, judge, sheriff, police officer, dad, pastor, elder, deacon, bishop. All these names that are named, right? How many of those does Christ have authority over? All of them. No, 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 no. You see, Pastor, that's violating the separation that we built between the church and the state. Yeah, pretty much. That's what it's doing. That's precisely what it's doing. He has universal authority over everything, every dominion, every power. And how did he get that? Because he overcame death. Can presidents do that? They think they can. Actually, doctors think they can do that. And while they say they're overcoming death, they're killing people. Oh, isn't that ironic? Why do you suppose that is? Because God will not be mocked. There is only one who can overcome death, and he is Jesus Christ. And he has all authority in heaven and upon the earth, and therefore all nations are to be what? Made his disciples baptized and taught everything that he commanded and then he'll be with us to ensure that task till when till the end of the world that's exactly right so here we have the authority of our lord jesus christ he is not just far above all the heavens in a local sense the place the actual expanse that goes from here up And then there's another atmosphere and there's the heavens and the third heavens. It's not just talking about some kind of geographic location. It's talking about everyone who lives in those locations. Whether they dwell in heaven, whether they dwell upon the earth, they are all subject to Jesus Christ. He has the right, he has the might, he has the dominion, and everyone who says otherwise is rebelling against his authority. Kiss the son, he says to the kings of the earth. Lest what? Well, lest you have the separation of church and state, and I can't tell you what to do after all anyways. No, lest you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little bit. You think Jesus is meek and mild wearing Birkenstocks and crunching on granola? Is this the Jesus that people worship? He's not in the Bible, let me tell you that. Here he is in his full might and glory and power and dominion, filling all things, head over all. This is the Christ that the martyrs died for. This is the Christ that the reformers preached about. This is the Christ that when our ancestors came to America, they said, we will establish a city on a hill. We will cause the light of Jesus to go to all the nations. This 
is the biblical Christ. Far above all heavens. This doctrine then, Christ's kingship, is supreme and universal. It is above all heavens. It fills all things. It was secured by his descending. No spitballs during the sermon, okay? It was secured by his descending to the field of battle into the lower parts of the earth, triumphing over his enemies, descending to the heart of the earth, rising again the third day, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, and ascending up into heaven with all rule, might, and dominion invested in him so that all the nations would become his disciples. Christ has taken his people's captors and he has brought them in chains and thrown them in jail and said, I alone will reign. Let us then, in exhortation from this, accept no other supremacy, no other universality. Let me say that again. Let us accept no other supremacy or universality. Now, let me just illustrate. The globalists, what do they believe? That there will be a universal world order. And that universal world order will be, you might say, benevolently governed by the philosopher kings who are who? Well, them. Isn't that convenient? They're going to be the philosopher kings and we're going to be the herd. And they're going to call out the herd every once in a while. We need to get rid of some excess population. Let's just throw little shots in here. Let's get rid of some folks. Come on, guys. We need, you know, about 500 million people on the earth. We are God. We are Christ. We rule over all. No. I reject your supremacy. I reject your universality. You don't have the right to tell me what to do in these matters. Oh, But we have a head of the church on earth who sits upon his throne, who rules and reigns ex cathedra, speaks infallibly. No, there is only one supreme authority in the church. There is only one universal bishop, and that is Jesus Christ himself. To someone who says, move over, Jesus. I want to sit here in this king's chair. You know what that's called? Antichristos. Antichrist. I will take the place of Christ. I will push him off his throne and I will sit in his throne. That is anti-Christian. Christ alone is the supreme ruler and king and he is universally so. Let us never look for, hope for, countenance any other universal truth than the words of Jesus delivered to us in scripture. Let us expect no other cement No other glue, no other religion than that of Jesus Christ. Now, ligaments do what? They hold everything together, don't they? Ligo is to bind or to glue together. Religo is when things are bound together. If you don't like religion, you don't like things being bound together. You like them scattered, lying on the floor. You like a body lying there like a worm sitting on the ground without ligaments to hold it together. Religion is the thing that binds us together, and Christ is the head of the true religion. He is what binds us together, and he binds all things. And when we go outside of Christ, what do we find? Fragmentation, brokenness, things can't fit together anymore. Why? Because we said no to the one thing that would hold it all together. 
And what, pray tell, is the reason that Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven? Why is it that he ascended above all heavens? That, the apostle says. Let's turn back, verse 10. He, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. That. When you read that word in your Bible study, ask yourself, is it referring to that wall, that person, or is it saying that as in the purpose of? Because often God uses the word that in Scripture as a purpose clause. Here is the reason why Jesus ascended far above all heavens. It's so, with this purpose in mind, he might. Now there you have the subjunctive. That tells you the purpose of the actor. What did this person do this for? That he might. That Jesus himself might fill he says, all things. What, fill like, fill the glass? You pour the water in and fills it up? Possibly, yes. That could be the case. Please open to John 1, verse 16, concerning the filling of Christ as the fruit of his ascension. John 1, verse 16. And of his fullness... John speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Now it's interesting, the ancient pagans had a system of theology. And they had various little gods. And they'd have like maybe a major god and some emanations. And they all came together. And when you gathered all the deities in one place, you had the pleroma. The fullness of of the gods, they would say. And the New Testament uses the same word, pleroma. But how does it apply it? The fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is fully God. We don't need to look for another one. We don't need to find someone else. There's no Zeus out there that we should scratch and find in the darkness. No, he has the fullness of God's grace for our salvation. This is the filling of Jesus Christ. John Diodati says that he may pour down the gifts of his spirit in all abundance upon believers who are the all, that is, the whole body of Christ. Christ will fill his people with all spiritual blessings, in other words. Please turn to Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, chapter 1. We'll look at verses 15 through 20. Referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." What is it that Christ fills all in all with? 
It's with his power, with his grace, with the forgiveness he mentions in verse 27 or verse 20, the peace that he makes through the blood of his cross, reconciling all things in heaven and upon the earth to himself. Christ then filling all things as the fruit of his ascension is his universal reign over his people and his universal reign over all things for the good of his people. Please open to Isaiah chapter 5 concerning the filling of all things. Isaiah, some have called the fifth gospel, the gospel in prophecy form, especially because of the descriptions of the kingdom of Christ given by Isaiah. We'll start chapter 5 at verse 13. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled, but the Lord of hosts shall be what? exalted in judgment and God that is holy shall be sanctified in the righteous. Did you see there the themes of captivity, of descending down into hell and of the rising again, the exaltation of God himself? Turn over to chapter 11 of Isaiah. I almost said of Isaiah's gospel, but the prophet Isaiah, starting at verse 1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now remember, why is it that they went into captivity in chapter 5? Because they didn't have knowledge of God. What does Jesus have? What does this stem from Jesse have? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of what? knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth that is his words speaking forth the sword of his mouth the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Look down at verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of what? The knowledge of the Lord. How much? What portion would you say? As the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass at that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. There is the idea of redemption. And how is that? Because Jesus Christ sends forth the knowledge of God to all the nations as an ensign to draw them in. And he says, they will come. 
when Paul preached to the Jews and they rejected his message, do you know what he would say to them? We turn now to the Gentiles, for they will hear. The knowledge of God will cover the earth. Note, note then the ignorance, the blindness, the hardness of heart. These are what brought men into captivity to sin, to Satan, and to death. But Christ prophesied here in Isaiah, he comes as a triumphant king from the line of Jesse, the royal line of David. He will send forth the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. This ministry of reconciliation through the breath of his mouth will be so effective that Satan, the great deluder of mankind, will do so no longer. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Christ fills his people with the knowledge of God's truth. Do you see why Paul prayed that for them? How is it that the knowledge of God will come to us by our strength, by our might? No, he says that the Father would enable you, would empower you to understand the greatness of this truth. And as he causes it, you will be filled with the knowledge of Christ. And as that gospel goes forth to all the nations of the earth, they will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the earth. So then this doctrine, the knowledge of Christ Jesus, ascended all heavens, above all heavens, ruling and reigning is designed by God to fill all things, that all the earth should be filled with the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, and the fear of God. And as we shall see, God willing, in future consideration, this is the goal of the ministry of the church. This is why he's saying this. He's getting ready to say, that's why God gave some to be this, some to be that, and some to the other, so that the knowledge of God would what? Increase, and we could arrive at the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the goal of the means of grace. Are they ordinary? Yes. Are they humdrum? Yes. Has God designed them to do amazing things? Yes. You bet your bottom dollar he has. He's designed through the preaching of his word to call all the nations of the earth into the fellowship of his son, to cause the knowledge of Jesus Christ to fill all things. Let us then pray for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that his authority over all the nations would be exercised and realized. Now the nations are in ignorance and misery. Sin and misery go together, don't they? What happens when the knowledge of God comes in and sin is beaten back? Well, misery goes back as well. You can see this throughout the whole Bible. Why do we pray that our magistrates would be converted to the true religion? So that we can live a life in all godliness and honesty. So that we can have quiet and peaceable lives. What happens when we don't have Christian magistrates? Can we live in all godliness and honesty? Not as God designed. Will we have quiet and peaceable lives? Will we be blessed in our lives? No, we will be cursed as we see right now. So let us pray for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that his authority over all things would be exercised and realized. Let us ourselves in the lives that we live, in the authority that we have, in the influence we exercise to seek to build that glorious kingdom. 
Let us repent of our sins, give good heed to God's word, seek to obey the commands of King Jesus, especially with regard to worship and keeping his Sabbath holy and giving honor to whom honor is due and in all of his holy laws. Ah, yes, there are big problems out there. We need to make a national change. Well, yes, that's true. Where does that start? It starts with me. It starts with you. It starts with our families. It starts with our children. And so God calls us, especially fathers. Let us labor to remove the ignorance that we have and that our wives and children have. You know, we're born into this world ignorant. We have the basic principles of the knowledge of God written on our hearts but we also have a depraved and sinful nature that even distorts those truths that God wrote upon our hearts. We must do family worship, fathers. We must know the word ourselves. We must be resident theologians in our households. Paul says, if a woman has a question, don't go and talk to the pastor. Don't raise your hand during worship. What what does he say to do? Ask your husband at home. He'll answer your questions. (gasps) Will he? Well, he should. That's what Paul's assuming. Let us then be resident theologians men. Let us answer our wives' questions. Let us, as Paul says, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lead your households before the throne of grace in prayer. Sing the songs of Zion in the house of your pilgrimage until at length you bring your little flock to the city of Zion. That's what God wants. Christ has ascended. Christ is ruling. Christ is reigning. His knowledge is going forth to fill the whole earth. And yes, the church has a primary role in that, but it doesn't stop with the church. It's not that you farm it out and say, now you go do this. You teach my kids. You do Sunday school. You do Wednesday night. No. God said family worship. God said, you fathers, teach your children. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord until we all come to his heavenly city above. Let's conclude then with some final doctrines and uses to tie these verses together. Our larger catechism asks, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? The answer in part goes as follows. Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself, in giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good. Note then, Christ's kingship is universal. It is over all, especially for the good of his people. Christ effectually calls his people. He said, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. God effectually calls his people. He overcomes their enemies. He leads captivity captive. He visibly governs his people, graciously giving them officers, laws, and censures. He gives gifts unto men, and he fills all things, ordering it to the glory of God and to their good. The second use of rebuke, if Christ executes this office of a king, again, this serves as a rebuke to any who would pretend on a small or on a large scale or a medium scale or any scale whatsoever to act as Christ's substitute, you might say. Christ is the lawgiver over his worship. Did you know that the Pope says 
that if you don't observe Christmas, you're going to hell. Did you realize that? It's a necessary day of observance according to the Church of Rome. Where did the lawgiver say that? Well, he didn't. You know who made that up? Man. Man made that up. And therefore, if he says, you must do my bidding, then we say, no, we must do Christ's bidding. What has Christ commanded us to do? There is only one lawgiver over our worship. There is only one judge over the conscience. And that's not me. And that's not your pastor. That's not your husband. That's not your wife. That's not your kids. That's not the culture around us. There is only one judge of the conscience. Do you know who that is, kids? Jesus is the Lord of our conscience. God rules over our conscience. Christ is the head. He is the ruler. Therefore, if men make laws for us, for our faith or our worship, they're saying, I sit upon the throne. Do you know what the word basilica means? It means the king's throne. Do you know that the bishops of the church claim to be kings, sitting on thrones, sitting in palaces? Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm your slave. Is that a king? Was Paul a king and ruler over their faith? No, he specifically says, I'm not a lord over your faith. I'm a helper of your joy. The laws of men then are anti-Christian. Men are not lords of our faith. They are to be helpers of our joy, and that's where it ends. There are no basilicas in Christian churches. Pastors are under shepherds and servants. The apostle Peter says he was a fellow elder with the other elders he was writing to. And we're not lords over the flock. We're examples for them. So this is a rebuke. And also there is an exhortation in this. If Christ is the king who rules universally, let us submit ourselves to the laws of King Jesus. Many people will proclaim, I believe that Christ is king. And then they show you a picture of an idol that's meant to represent Jesus. And you ask yourself, what does King Jesus say about graven images of God? He says, destroy them. He says, burn them with fire, break them down, tear them down, throw them away, have nothing to do with them. Why? Because God's a jealous God. No other gods, no graven images, no false worship. So if you want to say Jesus is king, great, agreed. But we must submit ourselves to his edicts. Where are his edicts? They're right here, principally in the New Testament. That tells us, what does the king say is acceptable in his house? After all, he's the Lord and master. We must then submit ourselves to him. Christ also has ascended up into heaven. And how does the apostle apply this to us? Let us long for where Christ is in the heavenly kingdom. Set your affections, he says, on those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is seated there at God's right hand and let us long to be with him. Let us long to go to the Son of God that we might be together with him at last. Pray for our magistrates that they may come to faith in Christ. Pray for your county sheriff. Pray for your board of supervisors. Pray for Governor Yunkin. Pray for Mr. Miaris. Pray for our judges, our delegates, and all magistrates that they would come to know Jesus because if they don't, the misery continues. If they don't, the destruction will go on. If they don't, we will begin to starve and see our economy crash entirely and be completely ruined. 
The judgment has already begun. Oh, God will judge us because we allow gay marriage. No, actually, God judged us by giving us sodomy open and public. That is a punishment itself, God says. That's him saying, I've turned you over to a reprobate mind. I disapprove of your society. I do not accept it. And specifically, it's the judgment on false worship. It's the judgment on offering incense that God didn't appoint, on singing things he hasn't said, on reading books he hasn't said, on using things in worship that he has not told you to do. God hates that. He is a jealous God. So we must pray, God, cause our magistrates to come to know you. God, cause our pastors to come to know you. Cause them to submit to Jesus Christ as their sovereign, that they might kiss the Son, lest they perish and we perish with them. And if they are converted to Christ, let us pray that we may then lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Second doctrine. The Holy Scriptures are of sovereign authority. The Bible is of sovereign authority. Now, Paul quotes one passage from Psalm 68, and he says that this proves the descent of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the identity of the person who descended and ascended, the universal dominion of Christ, his filling all things. All this is proved by the Old Testament, by one passage of Scripture. Just one is enough. Now, when the apostles preached, what did they always have with them? Well, Rabbi Shammai said this, and the traditions are that, and the Sanhedrin decided this, and da-da-da-da-da. No. What did you see coming out of their mouth? What did you hear? What were the words they spoke? Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. They would speak forth the words of God to prove their doctrines. Paul would go into the synagogue. He would open the text of Scripture. He would make allegations from the text of Scripture, and he would apply it to his hearers. Scriptures are of sovereign authority. Let us then found our faith, our worship, our salvation, our obedience, our conscience, our family, our personal ecclesiastical, vocational, and civil lives on this rule. If they speak not according to them, it is because there is no light in them. That's what God says. Listen for the word. Do you hear the word? Follow it. Know the word, love the word, live the word, breathe the word, pray the word, sing the word. Let the word dwell richly in you. This is the apostolic faith. This is a rebuke. This is a rebuke to any who would bind the conscience in worship or obedience of Christians. Whether men or women are told this is a doctrine or a commandment, It does not matter. If there is no scripture, it is not God speaking. It is man speaking. Edward Baines in his commentary on Ephesians says the following. And in this, we must much more imitate the apostle. The apostle used scripture to prove his doctrines. Not to speak without a text. Seeing we have the rule of scripture more enlarged. Okay, Paul had the Old Testament, maybe some of the New Testament. What do we have? We have the whole of the New Testament. So our rule is enlarged. How can we be without a text? Is what, That's the question. How could we go and speak to the people without the text of Scripture? He says this, It is no laudable thing in a lawyer to advise this or that, 
having neither statute nor rule case to show. So you go to an attorney, you start asking him about your case, and he says, well, I don't know what the law says, but you should do this. What kind of lawyer is that? He's defrauding you. He's asking for money and giving you worthless advice. Where's the statute? Where's the ruled case? So with pastors. If it's no laudable thing for a lawyer, so much more is it to be condemned in a divine if he speak anything for which he cannot show his warrant out of the book of God's statutes. Show me the money. Show me the text. Prove it from scripture. This is the Berean spirit. This also serves as instruction. The Holy Scriptures are of sovereign authority, and therefore, since Scripture is our rule, let us diligently read in the book of God's promises and God's precepts. We're coming up on a new year. Do you have a plan to read through the Bible? Do you have a plan to lead your family men? Do you have a plan to lead your family through the Word of God so that they can know the statutes of the King, the promises of Jesus Christ, the great grace of the gospel, the precepts of the law, the history of the fathers? Do you have these things available? Do you make them available to others? Know what he saith. Remember at the beginning? Wherefore he saith. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. God, Christ, speaking in the Bible. He's spoken to us. God has spoken in Moses, in David, in Isaiah, in Malachi, in Jeremiah, in the histories of the kings and chronicles, in Job and in Habakkuk, as well as in Matthew, Peter, Paul, and John. Know the entire Bible. You know, there's a, I'm a New Testament Christian. Have you ever heard that? This is a New Testament church. Oh, really? Would you excise the whole first part? You, you know, the one the apostles are constantly referencing? You just thought that was trash now? And now your church just exists on the foundation of the apostles? What about the prophets? Aren't they foundation stones to your church? Well, you can't be a real house if you have part of the foundation. You have to have an entire foundation. The apostles and the prophets. The holy city is founded on the 12 patriarchs as well as the 12 apostles. We must be whole Bible Christians. Have a plan to read the Bible privately. If you need assistance, ask me, I'll help you. We'll prepare a plan. Pray before you read the scriptures. Open my eyes that I may behold what? Wondrous things out of thy law. Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. That's what he says. He saith. He doesn't say David said or the scripture said, although that's true as well. God spoke in the Bible. God spoke to us by David the prophet. It is God who is speaking in the Bible. It's like the Holy Spirit is audibly speaking to you from heaven. Oh, you want an audible? Read the Bible out loud. That's an audible. You can hear God talking to you right now. You heard me. That was God talking to you when I read the Bible. Read it. Live it, know it, pray before it, meditate on what you read, improve the Sabbath, speak to one another of the things that you've read in the word of God, the treasures that he's uncovered for you. Then practice what you read in your lives and the God of all consolation will be with you. Amen. Let's pray.